0: Yesterday I attended a memorial service for somebody some of you may either have known or heard of. Her name uh, was Maylee Scott. She was a Zen teacher at the Berkeley Zen Center and a social activist and writer for many years. You, You may have read her writing in the Turning Wheel, the newsletter of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. About six months or so ago, I went up to Arcata, where her zendo is, and we took a walk in Redwood National Park, north of Arcata. After we'd walked for a while, we uh, crossed a stream, and the bridge which got us across was made of redwood logs, and in one redwood log there was a poem carved into the log and it read go where only the wind blows where the music has completely stilled. then you will hear the stream as if for the first time and enter the shelter at the heart of things a bridge a stream, crossing over to the other shore, all rich metaphors from our own Buddhist tradition. I want to use this poem as a jumping-off point for for speaking about Buddhism and our inner life and the heart of our practice before i do i want to tell you a, a funny story that may lee's daughter uh, told at the s- ceremony yesterday at green gulch she said that when uh... May Lee was was dying her dream life uh, was uh, fertilizing with her waking life, as often happens when people uh, get close to death. And there were these uh, marvelous and sometimes terrible images that Maile would talk about. But there was always a thread, a deep thread of meaning that uh, emerged. One of the images that uh, Lee, uh told her daughter Cassie about was of a kind of dark presence, foreboding, ominous, uh, not at all kind of pleasant presence. And she described it very vividly and with with an emotion of fear. And then she said, You know, I'm trying to make myself more available to it. (laughs) well uh, 30 years 40 years of practice even close to our deathbed that's the heart of practice just arising even when the conscious mind has no control over it we're not trying to appear uh, uh, dharmic (laughs) Uh, there's a the the nothing to be gained by saying oh what a learning experience when it's really awful this is coming from the heart of hearts i'm trying to make myself more available to it it's that spirit which i think characterizes true practice Welcoming each and everything, each and every being, just as it is. Go where only the wind blows. Go where things are as they are. In their bare freshness. In their vivid appearing. Can we feel that cool breeze when it blows in? Caresses our skin? Or are we so preoccupied with how hot and muggy it is? When it passes through, are we saying, oh my, this is fantastic, and by the time we get around to feeling the breeze, it's already hot and muggy again. This is really our experience, much of the time. and we go where things are as they are where the winds of change uh, that mark each moment of our lives are free to blow Mm -hmm. if we can find a way to welcome experience in this way then we find The great peace. The music is stilled. The chatter. The distractions. Even the sweet music. painful music all the reactive chatter of its own quiets down without trying to scrunch it this is the natural effect over time of um, making myself available to it But you know, the point of our practice is not simply quietude, although that may be a, um, a, a benefit that comes along with it. Many of us have experienced that we, we sleep better when we practice. Uh, our emotional lives are, are more modulated. Um, there are many, many benefits. But really, those are not the main purpose of practice. It seems to me that the purpose of practice is to go to the heart of things, as they are, and to experience directly the essential truths that the Buddha experienced and conveyed throughout his life. To make them our own and to bring them home and to share them with the world I had an experience uh, when I was sitting at the Maui Zendo many many years ago where I had had a breakthrough and uh, things were just cracklingly crisp and clear and during a, a sitting period um, where my brothers and sisters were were uh, sweating through an evening's meditation, I went up to my room in this little treehouse and, and sat quietly. And then uh, after about half an hour, I heard a knock, knock, knock on the door, and in walks uh, Aitken Roshi, uh, sort of saying, Hey, Joe, what's happening? And I uh, said, Oh... Um, All things are flashing into existence. And he said, Oh, yeah? Well, we're missing you downstairs. (laughs) (laughs) And just like that, the Buddha, after his awakening, relished it and nourished himself on it and wasn't sure what, was the, what the next step was. And it's only when some of his old companions kind of prodded him that he finally came along and uh, spent the next uh, decades walking the dusty roads of India, yeah. sharing his realization freely with those he, he met. The purpose of practice is not to Um, just become peaceful. And certainly not to get ensnared in quietism. That's a trap. The third line of this uh, poem, carved into the big redwood trunk, was... um, you will hear the stream as if for the first time. All of us have experienced this to some degree. Something ordinary, which we've always taken for granted, which we've just sort of bypassed. Could even be the face of a family member. Or uh, noticing something in a room which... uh, oh. When did you get that? Well, I've only had it for about ten years. Oh, seems like you just got it. Well, it wasn't the housekeeper who just got it, it was me who just got it. Something ordinary comes to life. And if we can talk about a purpose, it's kind of dualistic, but if we can talk about a purpose, this is the purpose is to find the extraordinary within our ordinary, constrained, limited lives, the lives marked fundamentally by unsatisfactoriness and suffering. How can we find that that spark of life, that extraordinariness within the ordinary? this is finding nirvana as samsara. It's a particularly Zen twist on things, but I think useful to think about. Is it Sylvia Borstein who says that suffering and pain are part of life, but anguish is optional? Mm-hmm. I, th- I, think, I think it's her. Uh, the stuff of life, doesn't really change qualitatively, although, let's say, the power of some of the afflictive emotions that ensnare us in our grips and that we're sort of impelled to act out to the detriment of ourselves and others may have less and less of a grip on us. But fundamentally, none of us does a 180 in this lifetime, you know, short of having a lobotomy. And the question is, how can we find within our daily lives, here and now, that revolution which the Buddha spoke about? And of course, we know, but can we experience that it's truly in our approach to what is, rather than in trying to reform or change what is? there are many different myths uh, about the Buddha's awakening the classical Theravādins have their myth the modern Vipassnas have their myth and the Soto Zen people have their myth and the Rinzai Zen people have their myth about the Buddha's enlightenment because we're not really sure you know exactly what happened so everyone has their own slant on it But. From the, the Zen point of view, the Buddha realized, as if for the first time, that um, all beings are the Tathagata itself. All beings are the Buddha nature itself. The very nature of all that arises and passes is nothing but... The sacred. And what triggered this for him in the Zen version is looking up from deep samadhi, preoccupation having completely fallen away, having completely shed all notions of, oh, I really have to find out what the meaning of life is. If I don't, you know. All of those tapes had long quieted down, and he opened his eyes and lo and behold there was Venus, the morning star, and the whole universe open, wide. We can't get rid of the sense of self, but we can let self-preoccupation and self-centered thinking fall away. We can't change the attributes we came into this life with. I can't make myself, well, maybe I can make myself into a woman, but but I don't think I want to make myself into a woman. I don't want to get into that. But um, (laughs) uh, I could shorten myself. In our modern world, we we can make these uh, sort of uh, cosmetic changes, but... uh, I don't know how in accord with, uh, with our true nature that sort of thing is. Um, can I make myself smaller? Can I change what happened to me up until this moment? I, I can't. There's some measure of living with deep acceptance of, of, of what is. But um, the constant self-referencing of all phenomena, everything that happens being interpreted in terms of, well, how does this affect me? Did I do well? Did I not do well? Um, Did I appear good? Did I not appear good? Did I hurt this person? Did I not hurt this person? I mean, we're familiar with this you know this is the self-referencing that can quiet down and what happens when it's completely quiet well I did a workshop uh, yes Saturday with uh, with Ajahn Amaro and um, he spoke about becoming transparent not empty not emptying the contents of the mind but of seeing through, seeing into the, into the nature of the self as flowing and not static and not absolute, of course, coming from not clinging to a particular version. And he and I had a good dialogue, and I encouraged us both to wonder, well, what really happens when everything is quiet? when inside and outside when all our notions through which we create the world create ourselves, when it all falls away then what happens at Plum Village in the early 80s to spend the summer at uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's place. I wasn't aware that I was full of do-goodingness. I hadn't served in the Vietnam Vietnam War and unbeknownst to me I felt very guilty about that not so much that I hadn't fought but that I hadn't done more to stop the war and that I just sort of benefited from having picked a good lottery number. Or not even picked, just having been born on a day that fell neatly outside of the uh, draft status range. So I arrived after a very long trip and um, as uh, Nut Han's right hand woman, Sister Fung, showed me around, I, uh, I fell in love with the place and the feeling. There were no Westerners there that summer, just Vietnamese and myself. And, um, and then just sort of welled up from within me, I said, you know, if there's anything I can do to help, please let me know. <coughs> and she looked at me and said, just to be is enough. from the mouth of the oppressed to the ears of the oppressors, liberating my dutiful drives to help and help ease my guilt. And uh, it's as if a great window opened and, and there was a great relief. And I spent the summer just being. When the sound of the bell can just be, and we can find ourselves as that bell, and find ourselves as that stream, then we also find that we're intimately connected one to the other. In what the Mahayana Buddhists call the net of Indra, which is a large macrame sphere where each knot has a little mirror in it, and they're all facing inward, and each mirror is distinct, but it contains all the other mirrors in the universe. And it's like that for us. When we become really, really still and practice, for want of a better term, renouncing self-centered, desires, those desires which are at the expense of others, and we make our our home there, then one day we might find that just in a clap, or in a laugh, or in the cry of a baby, or a sneeze, our world is torn apart, broken apart, and life comes flooding in and we're filled with understanding and compassion that each and everything, just as it is, even the bad things, even the bad things, even the bad people, are none other than realized, fully enlightened creatures. And we are completely in affinity, in harmony with them, with all creatures. Westerners can't understand an experience where we are intimately connected and at one with all beings and at the same time where we are distinct and unique. It's one or the other. Either we're different and I'm set apart from you or we're at one and I'm completely fused with you and I can't tell where I end and you begin and we know what kind of mischief and and pain that can cause we don't understand how we can be simultaneously distinct and yet not self-consciously so in opposition to the other but in harmony to the other the perennial Zen experience of awakening is this very experience And so, the myth of the Bodhisattva, which some of you may have have read about and know that at least in the writings on Buddhism, it's set in contradistinction to the myth of Theravadan Buddhism, which is the myth of the Arhat. The the, um, fundamentalist Theravadans say that the Bodhisattvas are too worried about everybody else to find their own freedom, and the fundamentalist Mahayanas think that the, the oh. Theravadans are too selfish because they're only worrying about their own liberation. But this is only caused by dualistic thinking. We, we don't understand because we, we don't enter into and make our home a unitive experience where I and all beings awake together. Separate, sacred, sharing with the world our own distinctiveness, and yet in harmony with everybody else's distinctiveness. I remember Ram Das telling a story, I think it was his brother or some relative who he visited in a, in a treatment facility in Massachusetts. Um, and either this relative or somebody else in this facility was delusional at that moment and was going around saying that he was Jesus now Ram Das had a discussion with him and, and came away thinking that that guy was, was half right and he, he, had, he had it that he was just missing one other piece and that was that Ram Das was also Jesus and his therapist was also Jesus See, but that's the problem. We we don't understand this. I mean, we may get it as an ideal. And when I was a kid, we wrote papers for Brotherhood Day. So, you know, we we love these ideals. But Buddhism offers us a practice path, a way into this practice, so we can make it our own. So the last line of the poem and enter the shelter at the heart of things. Now, at the heart of things, Theravadan and Zen teach the same thing. There is absolutely nothing to hang your hat on. (laughs) Nothing. Now, this can be very disappointing. I've seen a number of uh, practitioners get to a very deep place and then sort of... Is this all there is? I mean, is this the way it is? And they sort of feel really betrayed. You mean the the wind is cool and the heat is hot and my eyes are horizontal and my nose is vertical? Well, I knew that before I started, and there's a sense of betrayal. And clearly, um, this has been colored by an expectation of some dramatic Fireworks that, uh, you know, in comparison with which, you know, their own experience comes really short. But at the heart of things, all Buddhism teaches that there's nothing. Absolutely nothing. But this nothing is not vacant. And when we enter the heart of things, we find ourselves in intimate connection with all creation in intimate affinity with all creation. And the heart is not necessarily uh, a sentimental thing, but the heart is wider and deeper and vaster than we can imagine. It holds all of us without exception. And all of us manifest it without exception, whether we know it or not. And we need to shed our delusions and dualistic thinking in order to wake up to that fact. This shelter at the heart of things is not uh, uh, an enclosure. This wonderful feeling of being enveloped here tonight doesn't bind me or constrain me. I feel connected and enlivened by all of you, and we have a give and take. We create something new together. I'm not just hanging out here for my protection, and I hope you're not either. in the Zen trajectory of practice. hmm? Once we enter the heart, shelter at the heart of all things, we find ourselves in community. But not fused with one another, but able to say and experience each and every being, woman, man, thought, feeling, perception, animate, inanimate, and treat it. Treat each being with the utmost love and respect because we know it's none other than ourselves. And in this realization, we're not that far off from some of the core truths of the Judeo-Christian tradition, actually. Mm-hmm. But the Buddhist path allows us to go to the heart of things directly, not just take it on somebody's advice. And of course, we know the Buddha invited us to do the same thing. Don't take my word for it. Check it out. So I I think I'll stop here and would really enjoy your comments or questions. Uh, Please feel free to speak as openly as you feel moved to do with whatever is... Present and crackling for you in response to what I've said, or in your own practice or lives, and uh, let's see if we can't um, learn something together in in dialogue. Please. Right. 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 Yeah. It's a great question. Could um, you verbalize the question? Yeah. Um, in psychotherapy practice, and I could extend that to, to life itself, but specifically the question was in psychotherapy practice, how can we work uh, with clients um, where they um, uh, deeply need to feel a sense of groundedness and ground under their feet? And how does the uh, truth of uh, uh, anatta, uh, no self, uh, connect up here? Is that Um, My sense is that each of us is that person, to some degree. It's not just the clients who come through my consulting room. For me to work with somebody, I need to feel some connection that what they're going through, I also go through. Um, no, no matter how problematic it might be, if I can't feel any connection, it's, it's very hard to work with somebody. Um, so I, I, I'm taking this as, as, as a general question. How, how can we work when we need to know Uh, that there is something uh, reliable and trustworthy and um, grounded in in our being, in our daily lives. And how does that relate to the experience of um, nothing absolute to hang our hats on, to identify with, I think that each of us needs to have um, an intrinsic bodily background sense of being and of being who we are. And I think uh, even the most realized people have this. Uh, If one were to uh, ask the Dalai Lama to... Uh, jump off a cliff, uh, he wouldn't do it. He understands that, that, that this, uh, precip- there's a precipice there, that this precipice is not the same as level ground. And he understands the laws of time and space. Uh, if he knows he's got a plane to catch at 10 o'clock and someone says, uh, don't worry, we can get there at 11, he probably will say, it's a good idea to get there a little bit early. Um, he knows he's Tibetan and he's not American. And he's a man and not a woman and a monk and not a, uh, a layperson. Uh, when asked at Spirit Rock this um, summer how he would um, deal with uh, a student who fell in love with him and wanted to marry him, uh, he, he said... Uh, no, who fell in love with him and wanted to be in love with him... Uh, and how would he handle that? He said, um, uh, okay. (laughs) And then uh, someone asked, but what if uh, the next person came in and said that she wanted to marry you? Then he said he would reply, no, I can't do that. I'm a monk. Very free you see, very free and in accord with circumstances, you see. So how could we say there is a self there and there's the capacity to discriminate. No self does not mean relinquishing the capacity to discriminate. He knows he can't marry a, a, a student, but his feeling was, that if there's a, a person who wants to feel love for him, even romantic love for him, he can give that person that. That's his responsibility. He actually said, he said, I, I thought about it for a long time, and I, I'm a Buddhist, and I want to help people, and this is a way I can help. I will help this way. Basically saying, it's no skin off my back. You know, This person wants to feel in love with me. Okay. So, here you have someone making lots of discriminations, you know. uh, Where is this coming from? Maybe that's a good question. Where is it coming from? His internal sense of, of himself, of his purpose, is turned toward helping beings. And it responds in accord with circumstances. It's very flexible. If someone asks him for his name, let's say they can't read his passport, he'll say his name. He won't go around uh, refusing to say the word I. He'll, you know, I knew people who once raised their kid and they wouldn't let their kid say mine. Can you imagine a kid growing up with not not being able to say my toy? Now, now this is sort of a, a perversion of anatta, you see. We need to find no self within the world of discrimination. So how does this happen working with a client in psychotherapy? Well, one, it means that I need to get rid of all my ideals about anatta. That's to say I'm not consciously trying to get somebody to give up their sense of themselves. But with some person, some people, the, the work is actually to help them develop a sense of cohesiveness, internal cohesiveness. And paradoxically, that is the work of anatta. Does that make sense? That is the work of no-self, to help someone feel grounded, to help someone feel like he or she matters. I'll tell you a story about it. A story is worth a thousand words. (laughs) that's true too there's a wonderful Zen koan uh, and koans by the way are not uh, mind twisters and they're not sort of uh, tongue twisters meant to drive people to distraction or into uh, into the corner uh, pulling their hair out the the process of reflecting on a koan or inquiring is very similar to making a decision which you go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth about and then finally you just give up trying to solve it and you just sort of sit with it. And you know that it's there and you go through and and then all of a sudden, oh, this is what I should do. It just kind of appears. Haven't people experienced this? I mean, this is like working with a koan. So I just want to preface it by taking away the bad name that koans have gotten. There's a koan in Zen that uh, encourages us to experience for ourselves our essential nature that I was just talking about. And it is, uh, what is our original face before our parents were born? Show me your original face before your parents were born. And when I spoke about this the other day with Ajahn Amro, I told a story of um, a boy named Phil, with whom I was working in a a group therapy where I was also teaching meditation to these at-risk teenagers, a lot of whom are abusing alcohol and drugs. Phil um, was a, a black boy who was just incredibly attractive and energized, verbal, just talented boy, who hated himself, who was so filled with self-loathing. He was very creative and wrote reams and reams of raps and took lots of films, which he sold and made money from. Unfortunately, the films were of fights and sexual encounters, but uh, he was very resourceful and very, very creative. Well, at the end of our year-long group together, uh, everyone loved Phil. uh, But he refused to come to take the group picture. And everyone who tried to get him to take the picture um, was unsuccessful. So finally, I went in there. And he he was kind of an imposing boy, too. And nobody really wanted to push him too far. So I asked him, I said, what's the problem? He says, I'm not photogenic. (laughs) Well, here's the most compelling teenager in that whole group and I just said my butt you're not and I said come on and he said no 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 I said come on so he came and he took the picture and when the picture came out we could all see that his head was down he wouldn't show his face literally well the next week the the, we had a party and some of the kids who weren't there the week before came and we took another picture to get everybody and so there he was he was in the picture this time but his head was down so someone went over and just took his chin and just kind of moved it up and that picture came out with his face showing I think it's very important for us to realize that each of us is born with something precious And that's something precious, even though it's shorn of anything absolute we can call a self, is distinctive, unique, worthwhile, and sacred. And it's our um, practice in Buddhism, to my mind, to let the dross fall away so the essence can shine forth. And the only way it can shine forth is when all the dross falls away. That's the paradox. When we're not preoccupied with the self, we're most ourself. you see? And people say, oh boy, I got a real feeling for her, Well, I really felt something from... Well, that was because she's not all wrapped up in herself, right? So here's this paradox, and here's a way that I worked with it with Phil. And I saw no opposition to my work as a Buddhist teacher to take his head and move it up about 30 degrees and help him discover that he too had a right to be in this world and that he could have an alternate experience other than complete self-hatred and disgust. And I think this is the work of Buddhism, actually. And I'm not telling him, now, now, Phil, you're a good boy, because he called himself Filthy Phil. I would be bucking my head up against the wall to say, you're really a good person, Phil. I mean, that would be ludicrous. But if I can go up and just show him something and move his chin up or tell him, my you know, my butt you're not. Come on in. We need you. Or in some way show him directly without convincing him that I include him, that I respond to him. Maybe he can find that he's worthwhile to be you know, a part of this world, too. He's also a mother's child, you know. So, um, I don't know if that sheds any light on it or makes it more confusing, but um, it's, it's one of the perennial questions that comes up here, and a very good one. Any other comments or questions? Please feel free. We can have an exchange. completely still. Then you will hear the stream as if for the first time and enter the the shelter at the heart of things. Okay, thank you very much.